SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program uh, this Friday, the 10th of February. First, we have a story from uh, Nolombo in the top end. It's the story of a deadly environmental scientist, Jolene Ponteriero and her four-year-old daughter, who are living the dream. As you'll hear, after graduating in environmental science from Charles Darwin University, Jolene landed a dream job working on country while she's uh, fully immersed in your new culture and now identifies with three First Nations cultures. We also continue a conversation that we started a few days ago with Aaron Faoso, actor, screenwriter and producer, reflecting on driving First Nations narratives in the Australian media landscape, especially on NITV. And also in your program today, we explore the story of a deadly school student who has made history becoming the first ever Indigenous school captain in the 127-year history of her school. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy the native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, a new report finds Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples experience overdoses at a rate three times higher than non-Indigenous Australians. Australian Emergency Forces depart for Turkey as three Australians are still missing in the region. And in sport, Australian football star Samantha Carr leaves her mark on English League football. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been found to experience overdoses at a rate three times higher than non-Indigenous people in Victoria. A new report is the first by Victoria's Coroner's Court and analyzes 76 deaths from overdoses of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Victoria from January 2018 to December 2021. The report found Aboriginal men were more at risk of fatal doses than overdoses than Aboriginal women at nearly twice the rate. It also found that while most fatal overdoses occurred in metropolitan Melbourne, the proportion of fatal overdoses in regional Victoria was substantially higher in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples than non-Indigenous people. 
The death toll has risen to over 20,000 people across Turkey and Syria after the world's most catastrophic earthquake in a decade struck both countries. Such missions continue in the hope of finding more survivors stuck under rubble as rescuers persevere through freezing weather overnight. White Helmet volunteer Ismail Abdullah told Channel 9 more help is needed on the ground to help with the rescue mission. I don't know why it's difficult for, for the West aid to come to Northwest Syria. I don't know why. But unfortunately, the time passes and we're running out of time and no one responded to our calls to save the others. We're losing people, we're losing the, their voices. Turkish and Syrian communities in Australia are holding vigils of victims of the catastrophic earthquake that has killed over 20,000 people. Speaking to ABC Breakfast from the Grand Mosque in Melbourne, Director Rifai Rahim says it's important for communities to come together during this devastating time. Uh, They are shocked and sad. Um, Even last night I spoke to one community member who is at the moment in Turkey. So he was crying all the call. He said, I couldn't see anything here other than the people crying and they are digging the rebels and they are trying to find the bodies or the live ones. So it's a very sad situation. So that reflection is here. That's what we organized these uh, sessions. The debate surrounding the referendum for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament has flared again as some argue it is a risk to reconciliation. Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lee has called for more details on the voice as legislation on how the referendum will run is set to be introduced to Parliament in March. Remember, it's Australian people who are voting at this referendum. The government needs to do more work and explain better what it means by the voice because we all support the principle of constitutional recognition for our first Australians. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese says the referendum is the best opportunity at Indigenous recognition and that a committee would be established in March to further examine the details. The referendum is due to be held in the second half of this year to enshrine the Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. A Northern Territory Senator has stressed there needs to be further work to address issues in Indigenous communities ahead of the return of alcohol bans. The Territory Government will introduce laws next week reinstating bans in Indigenous communities in an effort to curb alcohol fueled violence. The bans follow increasing levels of crime in Alice Springs. Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians Malandiri McCarthy said while communities would be able to opt out of the alcohol bans if more than 60% support it, it will take time before that occurred. Senator McCarthy is meeting with community leaders in Alice Springs today along with Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Barney to discuss crime and alcohol issues. Opposition leader Peter Dutton admits his party will have to fight to retain the Victorian seat of Aston following the resignation of former Minister Alan Tudge. Mr Tudge announced he was stepping away from federal politics, citing health and family reasons after reporting death threats against his teenage daughters. Opposition leader Peter Dutton said that he remains confident that the Liberal Party can hold on to the seat. A by-election will now be held in the outer Melbourne seat of Aston, which the Liberals hold by a 2.8% margin. Mr Dutton told Channel 9 the upcoming by-election would be a difficult one for the coalition. As I say, I mean, by-elections are 
always difficult and there are different issues, lots of local issues. The government's ripped money out of road projects uh, in Aston. They have, uh, you know, I think abandoned the area uh, for a long period of time. And as I say, Alan is a popular local member and that always brings a vote with it which won't be present in the by-election. It is a tough seat uh, for us to hold. There's no question about that. And there are a lot of families there, though, who are really feeling the pain of their mortgages, which will always be higher under Labor. That's the the difficulty, that's the reality of what they're experiencing at the moment. Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers is to meet his state and territory counterparts to discuss rising power and gas bills and making housing more affordable. The online meeting comes as the Reserve Bank releases its latest statement on monetary policy after lifting the cash rate by 25 basis points to 3.35% on Tuesday. Defence Minister Richard Miles defended the Albanese government's plan to address the cost of living crisis as pressure mounts to deliver relief measures. Well, we'll we'll continue to make cost of living um, priority number one uh, for the Albanese government. And it has been since the day that we've been elected. We understand the pressures that Australians are facing, and that's why we particularly sought to act last year in respect of energy prices by putting the legislation through the parliament that we did. We'll continue to work with uh, state and territory treasurers, as the treasurer Jim Chalmers is doing today. This is is not an easy uh, process to work through, but we'll continue to do that. The statement will go into more detail about the Reserve Bank's decision to push ahead with the rate rise and discuss ways to tackle inflation. The meeting will also include a discussion on women's economic participation led by Finance Minister Kati Garaga and for the first time a local government representative will attend. Severe storms have battered many parts of New South Wales with intense rain in Sydney and Wollongong, sparking flash flooding and landslides. Damage damage from flash flooding extended through Sydney to the Hunter, with the New South Wales State Emergency Service fielding more than 1,000 calls for help, including more than 400 in the capital city. Senior meteorologist Jonathan Howe has told Channel 9 more wild weather is expected for many parts along the coast of New South Wales. It has been absolutely wild, 24 to 48 hours, not just in Sydney, but also the central coast and down towards the Illawarra with severe thunderstorms producing heavy to intense rainfall yesterday. So we saw another 50 to 100 millimetres right across the coastal areas, but we saw particularly heavy falls around the central coast between Gosford and Terrigal of more than 100 millimetres, of course, leading to quite a bit of flash flooding and disruption. There is still a bit of moisture in the air today, so Sydney can expect a couple of showers and there is also a chance of severe thunderstorms again in Sydney. We won't see as heavy rainfalls yesterday, but today's storms could produce large hail as well as damaging winds. An international telecommunications firm is the first company to breach Australia's anti-scam rules, which came into effect months ago. Modica was found to have broken industry standards by failing to protect its customers from exposure to potential text-based scams. The Australian Communications and Media Authority said the company allowed customers to send messages using text-based identities without properly checking they weren't being used to to perpetrate scams. According to the watchdog, the company did not have the appropriate processes in place to ensure all customers provided evidence to confirm they had a legitimate case to use the text-based sender IDs. Molika received a warning and must implement proper penalties or face fines of up to $250,000. 
Since July 2022, Australian telcos have reported blocking almost 90 million messages under the new rules. Scientists have discovered a protein that blocks COVID-19 infection and forms a natural protective barrier in the human body. The University of Sydney scientists say the naturally occurring protein works by attaching its attaching itself to the virus and preventing it from binding with more vulnerable cells, which reduces the chance of infection. Professor Greg Neely, who led the study, says the research offers a promising pathway to develop new drugs to treat the coronavirus. His team is one of three internationally to independently uncover this protein, the others being Oxford University in the UK and Yale and Brown Universities in the US. And to sport, Australian football star Samantha Carr has led Chelsea to the English League Cup. Not just uh, the English League Cup, but the English League Cup Cup final, scoring four goals in their 7-0 defeat of West Ham. The Matildas captain has been a prolific goal-scoring asset for Chelsea this season, with this effort bringing her tally to 20 in all competitions. The Blues will meet London arrivals Arsenal in the final at Selhurst Park in early March. And now having a look at the weather around the country this Friday afternoon, Broome, partly cloudy 32, Perth, sunny 28, Adelaide, mostly sunny 27, Melbourne, similar conditions 28, Hobart, shower 2, 23, Albury-Wodonga, sunny 31, Canberra, partly cloudy 29, Wollongonga, shower 2, 27, Sydney, much the same 29, Newcastle, mostly sunny 30 degrees, Brisbane, also sunny 30, Townsville, mostly cloudy 31, Keynes, cloudy 28, Alice Springs, sunny 38. Darwin, cloudy 28. And the Torres Strait Islands, a cloudy day ahead at a top of 28 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. And you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from NAM on the Cooling Nation. Coming up next in your program, we explore the story of a deadly scientist and her four year old daughter who are living the dream working on country and while also being immersed fully in Yolno culture. In the program, we also continue a conversation that we started earlier this month with Aaron Faust, so reflecting on driving First Nations narratives in the Australian media, especially on NITV. Also, we have the story of a deadly high school student who's made history becoming the first ever Indigenous school captain in her school. First, we head to Nolombay, the story of Jolene and her dream job. Graduating in environmental science at Charles Darwin University has helped Jolene Pontoriero secure her dream job in the top end. Together with Darcy, her four-year-old daughter, they are living the dream in Nolumbo in northeast Arnhem Land, where they've been adopted by the Yolno people. And Jolene is joining us on NITV Radio today to share her story of an environmental scientist, STEM champion, working seamlessly with traditional owners and immersed in culture. Welcome to NITV Radio, Jolene. Hi, how are you going? You landed uh, a top job thanks to 
your qualification in environmental science at Charles Darwin University. Tell us about uh, the dream job you landed. After I graduated from my bachelor's degree in environmental science, I applied to Rio Tinto for their vacation student program because I wanted to do some vacation work during the school holidays. But when they interviewed me, they offered me a full-time graduate role. This is a job in uh, the type of education you are doing. A lot of graduates usually end up doing something completely different from what they started until they learned something in um, their line of education. So for you, it was just straight from uni to work, no transition. A little bit different. I spent six years studying my degree part-time, working full-time. I worked for the Australian Public Service and more recently I had a position with CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation. I was working in the education sector as an academic coordinator for the Young Indigenous Women STEM Academy. Whilst I was working that position and helping young girls navigate their interests in STEM areas, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I actually graduated myself and I realised that I wasn't working in my interests, so that was environmental science. So once I graduated, I sadly left that position. I was quite upset because I really enjoy working with um, the young Indigenous women across the Northern Territory um, to navigate their path towards their ambitions of studying at university. But in doing that, I realised that I wasn't following my passion and dreams. So that's, yeah, that's why I ended up applying for the Rio Tinto vacation program and then they came back with a full-time grad role working as an environmental advisor up here in Nullumboy so it's something that I really couldn't turn down at the time. It's your dream job. What does a a dream job uh, consist of? Because you're very happy to be working on country especially and uh, you must yourself in culture. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your job. What you do. (laughs) So um, as a environmental advisor up here and because of my Indigenous heritage, any opportunity that presents where I can work with the traditional owners, so the Yongle people up here in the East Arnhem region, my work will Rio Tinto fully support that. So within my first month of commencement, I had the opportunity to support a flora and fauna survey for an area and as part of those surveys so any surveys that we do on country we invite the traditional owners to come along on those surveys so we can walk the country with the TOs so that's when I first met one of the senior elders here Mandika Marika my colleagues um, just seen the benefit of how important it is that we provide opportunities for Indigenous employees to work with Indigenous people on their land because the relationship just transformed to a whole other level where we can work collaboratively on joint vision. So the purpose of that survey was to identify um, different bird species living in the area, different flora types, so endemic species up here in the East Arnhem region. And it was an opportunity for the traditional owners to teach me about their country because I'm Jaru and Aranda. So Jaru is from the Kimberley and Aranda is from Alice Springs region. So learning about another person's culture and country as an Indigenous person is just so special and it 
just really ignites my passion within environmental science and that opportunity to learn about someone else's country is you can't compare it to anything else once you've experienced it. Now, as someone who navigates Western uh, science, is fully immersed in culture and uh, champions STEM while working in your dream job, are you able to keep uh, promoting STEM uh, within uh, the younger First Nations uh, generations? Help them pursue the same education and career pathways as uh, yours? That's something that I'm really passionate about is looking at what other opportunities can be provided for Indigenous people who are interested within that environmental science field. There's a recent term that's being brought to light as part of the two ways learning systems combining Western sciences knowledges with traditional knowledges. It's called traditional ecological knowledges. So that's recognising the thousands of years of knowledge that traditional landholders have regarding fire management, ecosystem management, looking after country. It's recognising that in a Western system. So paying tribute to that, utilising it. There's huge opportunities with doing that. So that's why I'm completing my um, Certificate Foreign Training and Assessment. So with that certificate and with my Bachelor's Degree in Environmental Science, once I get the certificate, I have the opportunity to teach um, other certificates that fall underneath that. For example, Certificate 4 in Conservation and Land Management, Biology, Environmental Sciences, Fire Management, so if I can provide as a trainer who can work effectively with traditional owners, keeping them engaged, because of all my experience working with um, youth in the past, I just know that I have huge strengths in that area and I have an opportunity to give back to the community via that avenue. So, yeah, we can see what happens in the future. Is Darcy uh, your four-year-old daughter following in the same f- steps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. So my dad, unfortunately, he had to deal with me catching snakes and bringing them home from about 10 years old. Um, and he was the exact same when he was younger. Um, he used to say to me, Jolene, I don't mind you bringing them home, but just make sure that you put the logs back where you found them because I'd roll logs over looking underneath them for like skinks and other animals and that he'd have to try and mow around them on the tractor and he's like and he'd have to get off and he'd have to roll them back in place um but Darcy she has because um I'm an environmental scientist and cane toads it's a really hot topic up here everyone is terrified of cane toads because they think that if you touch them you're going to get poisoned but that's not the actual fact you have to um, hit the cane toads really hard for them to um, excrete their poison and you can actually pick them up and handle them and that's exactly what my daughter does and she's been doing that from two years old so I have to deal with her picking up cane toads and treating them as pets and educating people about cane toads so it's been really interesting but yeah she's right up that alley she's been catching lizards and frogs instead of um discouraging it i'm more so encouraging it because yeah there's nothing wrong with that it sounds like a householder made in national geographic (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's really fortunate up here because we've still got a lot of our frog species and all of our lizards and that. So of a night time, we'll go out with a torch and we'll see what kind of species we can identify. So up here, we've got a really cool native species of frog. It's called a marbled frog and it gets really confused with the cane toad. So just making sure that I take every opportunity to educate people about the differences between cane toads and native frogs and not to kill them and um, educate yourself so you're best placed to make those decisions about safeguarding the environment. When you say not to kill them, uh, I hear a different story. People believe that uh, the Kentod is an invasive uh, introduced species that's actually wreaking havoc in the environment. Yes, it is. But people, um, they mistake a, the native frogs for the cane toads. As part of my certificate foreign training and assessment, my first opportunity, it was, it was a 20-minute presentation. So I actually brought a couple of cane toads in at different life stages. So I had an adult and I had um, a young adult and a juvenile cane toad. And we actually went through an intensive regime of identifying a cane toad properly from a native frog. So everyone re- really enjoyed that. So yes, they are an invasive species. Yes, they do wreak havoc on the environment, but you can dispose of them hum- humanely. I don't really like hearing of people spraying them with dead oil because it just hurts them. The best thing to do is pop them in a plastic bag, pop them in the freezer, let them go to sleep, let them die that way, then dispose of them correctly. And making sure you're not killing the native frogs, just the cane toads. The native ones are perfectly... Uh, aligned with the ecosystem and uh, other species can thrive around them whereas the kentod is uh, one that uh, would be one to actually try to manage its uh, expansion. Yeah, yeah, because they pose a really big threat to our gowanas, bandicoots, crocodiles, freshwater crocodiles, the Johnson's crocodile, um, all of those predatory animals and we're seeing a huge decline even in the frill neck lizards but mostly our goannas but every time i see a goanna it's a really good sign that the ecosystem is fighting back and those native animals are fighting back and dealing with the introduction of the cane toad yeah and now just to wrap up our conversation can you summarize for us how you manage work-life balance in your dream job, managing the environment, living on country, and uh, yeah, still uh, fully immersed in culture. So being a single mum and having a daughter who was, she was just turned two when I um, first took this opportunity. So obviously working in the mining industry, um, we work long hours and there's different arrangements. There's FIFO, from the fly-in, fly-out. The only option that I could manage as a young single parent was having to move here, so living here residentially in the community. So I start at 7am in the morning and I'm really fortunate that there's a daycare here that opens up at 6.30 and closes at 5.30. So I drop Darcy off at 6.30 in the morning at daycare and then I make my way to work and I work from 7am till 3.30pm and then I go to the gym um, to manage my (laughs) own mental health and physical health and then I go pick Darcy up and we're really fortunate here um, within Nullumboy. We've got heaps of different extracurricular activities on offer for the kids. So Darcy's enrolled in ballet, jazz and acrobatics. There's swimming, there's touch footy, there's so many opportunities. It's a really good um, community for families who are looking to relocate here. That was one of the big reasons which which is why I um, opted for Nullumboy as opposed to other sites like Weeper, Gladstone, 
Uh, I heard some, from some people that some of uh, these towns are child care deserts. There's nothing for ch- for children to actually to entertain them and um, support their development. But it sounds like uh, Nolumba is uh, very, very well equipped and uh, catered for. It's a thriving community up here. The kids run the town, anyone who lives here. But you see kids as young as five to six-year-olds riding to school. It's it's a really good community. Because there's only 3,000 people living here, um, everyone knows everyone's kids. So if Darcy goes, if we go to dinner at the boat club, she'll instantly recognise at least 10 of her different playmates. And it's a really safe environment. Um, that's why we're still living here, <laughs> really. Can you find me a job? Yeah. <laughs> depending I'd, on what you want to do. <laughs> I'd move there immediately because it sounds like a, a paradise on earth. Yeah, and the fishing. Um, me, I, I'm a really big... I grew up in Darwin, so obviously I like fishing. Um, and the fishing is just next to none here. The waters wow. are pristine, crystal clear, snorkeling. It's just, it's got such a great opportunity for a life here and that's why I'm so fortunate and grateful that I have the opportunity to live here but also be recognised by the traditional owners and welcomed here to their country. I'm really, really fortunate. Um, I do know that a lot of people don't get to work in the field that they are really passionate about, especially as an Indigenous person working in the environment. I think there's a lot of people out there, especially Indigenous people, who just really value that line of work, and that's what fuels my passion and keeps me here. Julian Pontariero, thank you very much for sharing your story with us on NITV Radio today. Thank you. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And now uh, we have a conversation with uh, Aaron Faoso. He's an actor, screenwriter and producer known for his role in East West 101, The Straight and Black Comedy. He established Lone Star Productions in 2013, which brings stories of the peoples of uh, the Torres Strait Islands and North Queensland to the screen. We caught up with Aaron in the sidelines of NITV's 10th anniversary to reflect on the channel's place in the Australian media landscape and also its capacity to drive First Nations narratives. In this part of our conversation, Aaron expands on this topic and also talks about his role as he was selected to curate NITV's summer programming. He says he was quite honoured and humbled to curate this content. Um, felt quite honoured to actually uh, curate that uh, particular package and as a celebration for our platform, but also it's also, you've seen the growth of, of our own sector now. You know, our sector, you know, once upon a time, there was only... I remember going to a Logie's as an actor, and there'd be only myself. Uh, you'd see Ernie Dingo, Aaron Pedersen, and Deb Mailman. There'd be four of us. And perhaps, you know, Luke Carroll, you'd, you'd see there. So but there'd be four or five of us. And, and that was like, that's like 20 years ago. And now, if you were go to a Logies or an actor, a, actor award or any other industry award, you've got, you know, you've got a whole bunch of us. You've got a sea of us now. So I think it, it, it's an indication of our own growth within the sector. But it's also, this growth is also due to our, our platform, NITV. And, and NITV plays a critical role and a pivotal role in the, the development of, of the sector, 
but also forging career paths for our, uh, for our sector and growth. I mean, there has been a growth in the sector. When we, when we stand back and we look and what we've done over 10 years, I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. When you think that the budget hasn't even changed, it has been the same budget in place since 2007 up until now. So I think um, further discussions with the federal government would be uh, absolutely welcomed in terms of increasing the budget because I think if you look at what we've achieved over the last 10 years, the growth in the sector, and also how our sector has impacted the entire industry uh, across across its broad, broad spectrum when, when you think about digital, when you think about unscripted, scripted, and even in the entertainment space, our sector has made a vast impact over the last 10 years. And that's also due, that comes back down to having our own, own network and our own platform. So for us as established uh, practitioners that we can elevate and amplify but also it gives an opportunity as a breeding ground or a nurturing ground to uh, also forge new practitioners into the space, whether that's in front of the camera, whether that's behind the camera. It's just evident in terms of how important this platform has been. And especially when you look at the... It would be great to have a look at... um, in terms of if you were to uh, get out, um, you know, in terms of uh, analyse and, and, and the, the growth and the impact that NITV has pre-NITV to, to, to the establishment of NITV and where we are now uh, 10 years on and where we, you know, in terms of what that growth has been due to the impact of NITV. And that's why... You know, it was a no-brainer for me to actually lean in behind to support, you know, the 10th, uh, 10th anniversary. And, and it was no-brainer for, for me to actually continue to support NITV 10 years and beyond. Yeah. And I must uh, remind our listeners and viewers that uh, they can enjoy content curated by you on SBS On Demand. And also your own uh, production of uh, the... Uh, straight, straight to, the, to plate. the plate, yeah. Tell us Season about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, like I mean, that 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 all that also has been um, you know a great, I guess, series to be to actually bring to fruition as well. I mean, if you would ask me twenty years ago, even ten years ago, that I'd be doing a food and cultural documentary series slash entertainment series in the Torres Straits, I would have said that you, you you'd be kidding yourself. But I think. What's great to the plate has offered me and what NITV has given me the honour and privilege to do is to, to give another viewpoint or another slant or another angle on, on you know, giving the Torres Strait or to elevate the Torres Strait region, to amplify the region and to, to see it from another spectrum. And food is such a um, huge platform, you know, across... I mean, SBS has got its own... Uh, specialized ch- channel it's the F- SBS food channel and you've just got to look at the number of uh, food channels that there are out there I mean it, it is just a huge landscape a massive landscape and and I think uh, food is also a, a great way to actually introduce um, you know the, the Torres Strait or the world of the Torres Strait um, to to other to other um, 
or to the broader 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 audiences. And I think through this SBS uh, and through the through through the SBS channel, that's been able to uh, come to fruition as well. There's been a you know a number of uh, people from all around you know the country that have have had, have had access due to the, that food channel, but also due to that. NITV, you know, initially uh, giving me the opportunity to give the Torres Strait another way to elevate and amplify my beautiful region. And it just, it's another way for people to engage. And uh, I, I remember I remember when we launched the first season, and we launched the first season at Parliament House, at Queensland Parliament, at Queensland Parliament, the tourism minister at the time almost fell off his chair when he watched the first uh, the first couple of episodes that we screened because he saw the value. He saw the value in terms of, oh, my gosh, I never looked at the Torres Strait as a tourist destination before, but now I do because of the food, because of the people, but because of the beautiful landscape up there. So, you know, and I just hope that um, and through such programs and through such... Um, opportunities, people are able to see, or, you know, the wider community are able to see this beautiful region and our country as a whole in another light, but through our lens, yeah? Yeah, 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 and I can testify uh, from uh, just across from uh, SBS Studios at Federation Square. There's a nice Torres Strait Islander restaurant, and it's always packed. Just because people don't know it's uh, you know an Islander restaurant, when they go there, well, <laughs> they can never stop uh, bringing friends and relatives to come and discover that place and the food and the culture. The Big S, it's called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the biggest, or like, yeah, it, it's it, it's it's the um, well, straight to the plate as you know, spiked its business. You know, I mean, and and uh, the sister there has um, stolen all my recipes. <laughs> <laughs> no, she has some good chilies there. That uh, I think she's been, I think she's been waiting for the second season to come out and see what recipes she gets flogging. <laughs> <laughs> she's got some sauces that, uh, well, she says she created, but I can testify she does because I've seen her do it. Very, very good food. Very, very well uh, presented as well. The uh, the interior designed by uh, First Nations uh, artists and so on. Really, very nice place. Yeah, and 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 what's so great about the, the, the that that tourist would will straight to the plate. It also um, is is a bit of a, I, I guess, an educational. Um, I guess an educational series at the same time as well, because our region has been influenced by so many different cultures due to the pearling industry, which was the pearling boom of you know the 1870s, yeah. where it was our version of Eureka. The whole world basically converged into the Torres Straits from all around the world, and so there's a, there's a strong you know Japanese influence and fusion within our foods, Chinese. Singalese, Indonesian, as well as um, Polynesian, as well, and Spanish, uh, and as well, you know, as well as you know the European European fusions as well. So, I think what we've done in the Torres Strait is, you know, we've 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 actually taken you know the best parts of of our culinary uh, delights and we've fused them together of the best parts that we've been able to. Uh, able to extract from from the other influences and other cultures that have 
come through over over the last century and a half into the Torres Straits, but we've adopted it and we've made it our own. I discovered the true history and other facets of uh, the Torres Straits more deeply uh, in a recent book by uh, an islander academic and historian, Lea Louis Chivize, a book that details the story of islander masks that were taken uh, in the 19th century to be displayed in museums around the world, uh, masks that tell the many facets of uh, islander history and culture. Uh, the book, I think it's called... Um, Masked Histories. It also tells the moving experience of contemporary leaders when they rediscovered these cultural items that were removed from their country. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's um, Leah Louis Chavez. Leah yeah, Louis Chavez, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's, uh, she's, a, she's another great uh, Torres Strait advocate, but also, you know, yeah. uh, a great academic and a great historian. She leaned in and, and uh, assisted... Uh, my history documentary series. Uh, she was one of the uh, historian practitioners that uh, that yeah. actually assisted in, in creating uh, or assisting me in creating. And in terms of the historical facts, when I created um, Blue Water Empire. Now, before I let you go, Aaron, just a, a closing parting word. Parting words. Always was, always will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait on the land and sea country. NITV Radio. Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Welcome back. And now uh, the story of this deadly woman. Well, her school has been around for 127 years, yet she's just made history, becoming the first ever Indigenous student to become a school captain in this school. Karen Cox has more. Creating history through her own story. Lamana Valentine always dreamed of becoming a school captain. Year five, I was like, oh, I could really do this. Um, but it was definitely on my conscience that I wanted to do something great at the school and like try and achieve something that I'd be proud of and leave a legacy. Never in the 127-year history of the school has anyone achieved the milestone. I just want to make sure that I do everyone justice who became before me and then for the future, hopefully the future Aboriginal people that become school captains and prefects and stuff like that. I hope that they, I've like made a good pathway for them to excel. The proud Goreng Goreng and Gubby Gubby girl was also a junior school captain, never letting history get in the way of her dream. I think the school would have been ready for an Aboriginal person to be captain earlier. I would just say I was just very fortunate to be the first one. The school's principal says she will inspire others to dream big. It certainly gives an opportunity for somebody to be ambitious and to say that I can do it. I'm more interested about the little girl that's sitting in year seven that's looking up at her and thinking, do you know what, maybe I could be that person. New leadership for the years ahead. Karen Cox, NITV News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Now, that's all we have uh, for today. Thank you very much for your company. I'm Bertrand Tungandami, wishing you a beautiful and uh, safe weekend. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.